In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Do you guys remember what we talked about last week in 1 Timothy chapter 1? Who was First Timothy? <laughs> Why do they call him First Timothy? Um, okay, so I mean, we it covered several things. Um, of course, we said the First Timothy is one of the pastoral epistles, a letter written from Saint Paul to his disciple in order to guide him in his ministry and in his service, um, and he warned first. <laughs> <laughs> Timothy, <laughs> um, uh, against like um, uh, like putting up with a lot of the false teachers who wanted prominence for themselves, and that was like one of the big um, one of the big themes of the of the chapter that we spoke about last time, um, uh, because this was a, a problem in the early church uh, was a lot of the the false teachers who were coming um, and were wanting to preach contrary to what Saint Paul was preaching, just because they wanted to have an audience and they wanted to have a voice for themselves. Um, so that was that was one of the main themes from the first chapter. Um, God willing, today we're going to uh, cover uh, the second chapter. So he says, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Um, and, and here, when he's speaking about all men, he's speaking about everyone, all right? And everyone can be divided to multiple levels. So you can say um, that prayers uh, and supplications and intercessions done at the personal level, like the individual level. So when we are um, praying on our own, we are praying in this way. We are we are giving thanks. We are asking for the intercession uh, of the saints and of other people. We are praying to God. We are making supplications. Um, we are asking God for the things that we want um, on an individual level. And then also, like at the local level, like at the level of the church, right, that we together in the liturgy are praying for the same things. And then at the universal level, which is the level of the whole church and the world, that we are all praying for the salvation of the world um, together. Um, so uh, the church is, um, you know, it's not an institution that competes with the world to obtain its possessions, right? But the church is a congregation that's devoted to worshiping God. So we are praying for um, for God to intercede, for God to work, for God to um, to 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 intervene in the world. And just like as we say in the Lord's Prayer, um, you know, um, on earth as it is in heaven, your will should be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we're asking God to like transform the earth to be kind of like heaven, right? And that all the characteristics of heaven would be found on the earth. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that the earth is ever going to become heaven right but we are asking for god to work in the earth and in the people in the earth to make us all to be christ-like and in me as an individual to be as heaven um, because the lord said that the kingdom of heaven is within you meaning that within us is the temple of god within us is the place where god dwells and we can become christ-like and heavenly um in in ourselves okay so here what saint paul is saying it represents like the, the stages of fellowship with god okay um like ascending right but they complement each other but they're like ascending the the believer begins by making supplications so maybe the first thing that comes to mind when someone thinks of i want to pray means i want to ask god for the things that i want right like i want to ask god because i want a job i want this and that what so so the, the main reason maybe why i would pray is to seek from god for my desires that would be like maybe the the first level 
okay? Um, but then it moves on to prayer, what's referred to here as prayer, um, or like, um, like, like a deeper conversation with God, not just about my immediate needs, not just so they can grant me the things that I want, but at a deeper level, um, I'm, I'm praying and having this conversation with God, okay? And then after this, it goes to a higher level, okay, where it is the level of intercession, where also I am an intercessor. So I am seeking the good of others. So I am praying for others. I'm, I'm praying for the needs of others. I'm praying for the salvation of others. This is, a, yet again, a higher level, okay? And then um, at the end, it speaks about the thanksgiving, right? That we are thanking God, right, for everything, for everything he has given. And he's, we're thanking him for the things that he has given us according to what we've desired and also the things that he has not given, essentially acknowledging that everything that God does is good. So if this is a very high level for us to acknowledge that everything that God does is good, then even while we are going through some kind of a suffering or something that we wish we were not enduring or having to go through, that even in this we are, we are thankful to God. So these are, you can kind of see them as like a ladder or steps. Of course, we, they all, they all complement each other. We all should be practicing all of these. Um, but if, even if we look at the contents of our own prayers, that as we mature spiritually, we should see that more and more our prayers are moving from that of the supplication category to uh, the others, right? So as we are advancing, that our prayers are becoming more fruitful or becoming deeper. And that's one of the advantages of praying with the Agbeya. Because the Agbeya gives us a model of prayer where we can pray for and with all of these different levels, um, using all these different um, ways of, of thinking about God and praying to God. So our focus is not just simply on, God, give me this, give me this, give me this, right? So it's showing us a model for how we should pray. Um, he goes on, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peace, uh, peaceable, uh, peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. And maybe one thing we neglect to do is to pray for our leaders because we just criticize them all the time. And it seems like criticizing them and praying for them are like opposite things. And um, sometimes we, we, we forget to do this. Actually, there's one of the litanies in the church called the Litany of the Leaders where we actually pray for um, the, the, the leaders. We pray for the, the rulers, right? And why is that so important? It's because they have such great authority in order to mold the earth. Like when we when we ask God to you know for His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, well, I mean that isn't necessarily going to happen miraculously. It's going to happen through the work of people, right? Like who is it, who is it that's going to make the world to be heavenly? Who is it going to make the world to operate according to the tenets of God and not according to perverse and wicked um, guidance? Right? It's the people, right? And especially when you think of democracies, right? Democracies are supposed to be run by the people. And the people are going to elect the leaders according to their own desires, according to what they believe is important, right? So, so really, the, the, we are praying for all of us and for the leaders in order to establish governments in the world that are righteous, that are just, that, you know, that, that punish the, the, the evildoer, that bring justice to the innocent, um, that establish the law of God, that, you know, uh, operate according to the moral code of God and so on. Right, so so here again, this is the contents of our prayer. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
Okay, what does St. John Chrysostom say about this? He says, what is it that is acceptable? Prayer for others. That is what is acceptable to God, and that is his will. Follow God, for he desires that all be saved. This is the mystery behind the prayer of each person for everyone else. If God desires that all be saved, then you should have the same desire too. When this becomes your will, then pray that this desire be fulfilled. So a part of the, the, the growing in prayer is that we are growing into having the same desire that God has, which is that all men should be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. This is part of what we should be seeking, right? Again, maybe uh, we find that in our prayers, they tend to be very focused on ourselves, but to increase the, 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 the spirituality of our prayers, to be focusing not just on ourselves, but focusing on all the people that need uh, our prayer, which of course means that we believe that our prayers have an effect. You know, sometimes we believe that praying for the government leaders uh, praying for people who are going through difficult things. Um, really, it's like, well, what benefit is it um, for them when I pray for them? Or even like in the government, like well, who, who, when I pray for the president, when I pray for the Congress, like is it really going to make any difference, right? Um, but but here, um, and, and, you know, we see examples even in the scripture of someone like Daniel, for instance, who through his faithfulness was able to get Nebuchadnezzar the king to believe in God even though he was a pagan, right? We see examples of people because of their, their good works, because of their faith, that they, they were actually able to make big changes um, to, to, to the governments, right? Um, and, and so here he's speaking about um, the, the prayer that would result in the salvation of the people, the salvation of the world, and that God desires all men to be saved. Sometimes um, we think or, or people think that God is just like this angry God who is seeking to condemn sin uh, and condemn the sinner and everyone who is committing sin, he is very quick and, and, and eager to cast them into hell because they are against him. They are his enemies. But actually, th the scripture says the opposite. He's, it says that he is long-suffering with them, right? Because he doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't want, and even, even those people who are against him. You know, when Christ was on the cross, he was doing what? He was saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even while he was in the midst of the pain and the suffering of the cross and the rejection of the cross, he was still seeking the salvation of the people, even his crucifiers, right? So this is the desire of God, because we are all his children, and he wants us all to be saved. And how is salvation going to come? Salvation comes because we know the truth, right? Like, when the person knows the truth, the implication here of knowing the truth is that you are going to act based on the truth, right? Like, I, 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 the reason why a person would not be a follower of God, would not be a believer, is because they do not know him, right? They, they, they were not exposed to this teaching. They, they don't understand him. They don't believe in the Christian God. Um, so they are not following him. But once they come to the knowledge of the truth, once they believe, then their life is going to change because their life is going to be conformed to that truth that they now see and realize for the first time. Okay, and of course, when St. Paul went on all his missionary journeys, this is what he was doing. He was revealing the truth of, of the gospel to the people, and the people who accepted it chose to change their pattern of life, chose to change their beliefs, and to live according to this new system. So when he was writing the epistles, when he was rebuking them, when he was calling them to this higher calling, this is all the people who are doing this. Okay, But there is a category of people who even having heard the truth and acknowledging that it is true, they do not change anything, right, about their lives. 
Um, we, we were talking at the servants retreat about uh, four categories of people and one of them we call the uninterested believer, right? Like the person who is a believer, but they are not committed. They are not, they, they, they know the answers to the questions and they know what is true, but they're not living according to it, right? So here when we are praying, we're praying not just that we come to the knowledge of the truth like in a, in a, in a mental way, right? That we just come to know the answers, right? But that we come to the commitment to the truth, right? That we choose to live according to the truth, that we choose to cut out sin, that we change our lifestyles according to the truth. Um, and this is the prayer that we pray for ourselves. We pray for our church and we pray for all the churches and for all the people in the world, right? And this is what God is seeking for all of us. This is what he wants for us because he wants our salvation. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Okay, here this is a very famous verse um, that speaks about the mediation of Christ. Right? What is the mediation of Christ? Salvation by what? Yes, yeah, so the, the work of Christ on earth in his incarnation, his crucifixion and resurrection, he became a mediator. And what is a mediator? Like, what does it mean to be a mediator? A middleman, right? Like a reconciler. Right? You have two parties that are, like, in disagreement or at odds with each other. And then a mediator comes in and he mediates between the two. So now they have, they are in agreement or they are reconciled to one another. Right? That's what a mediator is. He mediates. So in what way then is Christ a mediator? Who is he mediating? Humanity and God. Right? So why do they why does he need to mediate? There's been a break. Yes. Man and God were on a break. Why? Because of the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So when, when God created man, he created us, of course, in union with him, in unity with him. There was no separation or break between the two. There was no separator, right? But in sin, man chose to leave God. It wasn't that God chose to leave man, right? Man chose to leave God, okay? And so God was unsatisfied with this arrangement. He doesn't he doesn't doesn't want man to leave even though it is man's fault and God is the one who granted man free will so that they can leave anytime they want and they chose to leave but he was unhappy with this right he was unhappy so he chose a means of reconciliation again to bring man back to God so there could be reconciliation between man and God and this was the work of Jesus Christ and it says who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time so here's a trick question because this is like a controversial thing when we speak about the ransom. What is the ransom? Like, like when you think of a ransom in general, like what is a ransom? Okay, good. So, so like, so we use the example of like if there's like say a kidnapper, right? So you, there's a kidnapper who kidnaps the child of like a wealthy man. And he says, I will not return your child to you unless you pay a ransom. And who is the ransom paid to? The, the kidnapper, right? 
He's the one who receives the ransom, and in exchange, he returns the child. Okay, so how do we understand this term, ransom? Who is the ransom being paid to here? Why is Christ a ransom? Okay, how explain? Good effort, good effort. Good. So the ransom is not being paid to a person, right? Because some people incorrectly uh, interpret this verse to mean like somehow the ransom was paid to Satan, and it was not. Okay? As though almost like Satan is the one who has the children of God in his hand, and Satan is, demi is demanding some kind of ransom be paid in order for him to release the children of God. But that's not right. Okay? But the ransom was paid to satisfy the divine justice. Because from the very beginning, God outlined the consequence of sin. Like, why is it that when man sinned, that there was a separation between them and God? From the very beginning, right, the wages of sin is death. Except because God is life, so when you separate yourself from life, you die. That's by definition, that's what death is. Like defi de by definition, death is to be separated from life. And death is actually the natural course of everything without God. Like without God, there is no life. Like, like God is the one who brought life from nothing. He's the creator, right? So he created life from nothingness. So what is the normal natural state of the universe? There wasn't even a universe. It is death. It is, it is non-existence, right? Non-existence. So God came and he gave life to everything, including us, right? So when we are united with him, we have life, and we have life in every type of manner of life that you can imagine. Like we have the physical life. We have a, a life of abundance. We have a life like being like a life that is a spiritual life. We have, we have like every positive kind of aspect of life that we want to have, not just like that we are physically living, but that it is a life that is filled with goodness, okay, in, in him. So when, yes, when, no, so, so it's not that it is paid to the Father, right? Because, because another view is that it's kind of like, um, like, like, like Christ was satisfying the wrath of God, okay? But, the, but that implies that God is angry and, and, and vengeful. And it's like Christ needs to satisfy the vengeance of the Father. And then once the, sa once the vengeance of the Father is satisfied, now, um, now the Father is like, okay, now I'm not angry anymore. Right? Yeah. Yes, I mean, that's true. That's true. Because that's the reconciliation. Like the reconciliation is happening. But it's not happening because the father is satisfied that the son is suffering. It's not like now that someone is suffering and my vengeance is satisfied. Okay? So I'll get to you a second. So the, 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 because as we said, the ransom is being paid to satisfy the divine justice. So meaning that, that the wages of sin is death is like the natural law that God made. Because it is the separation from him that caused death. The natural law is that when someone is sins, meaning separates from God, that there is death. So in order for 
someone to be reunited with God again, there has to be the death the 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 death penalty has to be paid, right? It is not because God is so angry. It is because this is the natural law. It is the it's the law of, of the world. Like for instance, when someone walks out into the middle of the street and gets hit by a car because they were negligent and they die, do we say this is because of God's wrath? No, it's not God's wrath. It's the natural law that if you go and walk in the middle of the street, then you're going to get hit by a car. And if you die, it's not because God is vengeful with you. It's because you broke the law. And the law is the natural way that the universe runs, that God made. He made it such. So the idea that separation from God and sin brings death is the natural law. So, so it cannot be circumvented, right? It cannot be circumvented. There has to be death. Death has to happen in, because of sin. Okay, but Christ in his love, God in his love, did not want this death to to separate mankind from him eternally. So he made the plan of salvation, right, in order for us to be restored again. And that's why Christ had to die. It was not sufficient for Christ simply to incarnate because there is a view in the Eastern Orthodox where they emphasize more the incarnation of Christ rather than the crucifixion. And in, 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 in thinking that way, what they're saying is, by the incarnation, Christ united with human nature and healed the human nature, which is good. Yes, he's healing the human nature because he's uniting with it. But this is not sufficient to satisfy the divine justice that requires there to be death because the wages of sin is death. So he gave himself as a ransom to satisfy the divine justice, to, to, to satisfy this natural law that God had created so that we cannot look at God and say, well, God did not follow his own law. Right, God did not circumvent His own law. You know, it's like if a if, let's say you know a father, let's say is a teacher, and his own son was one of the students of the class. Okay, and um, there was like a, a test, right, that all the students of the class had to take, and his own son was unprepared for the test, and so he failed the test. Right, the father couldn't go and say, no, I, "I love you, my son. I'm going to give you an A on the test, even though you failed the test." Right, the the natural law in this case is the fact that the test is fair and is administered to everyone equally, and everyone has to take it. And whatever grade you get, that's what you get. So in our case, in the Garden of Eden, we failed. Like we failed the test, so we had to get the failing grade, right? But there was another way, right? That 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 Christ set up in order for Him to take the penalty and the punishment for us so that we can be restored not because we were good not because we did it not because we got an a right but because he fulfilled the law apart from us he fulfilled the law on our behalf do you have a comment Yes, it is exchanging our, uh, his righteousness for our sin in the sense that um, he is righteous. And because he is righteous and without sin, then his death on our behalf could be that exchange. Like, for if he were a sinner, then he himself would deserve condemnation. So the fact that he would die is doesn't do anything. I mean, because he himself deserves death. But the fact that he is without sin and God then when he receives the punishment of death, which he does not deserve, it's like he is receiving it on behalf of humanity. Like he, he um, united with humanity, 
So he is like a representation of humanity in that sense, being united with humanity. And then, being without sin, took the penalty of sin on himself, so now the divine justice is satisfied in him because he did not deserve it. He was like, uh, he, he, he was like the, the one who took it instead of us. Yes, and that's actually why baptism is death. Right? Actually, this theme of death, you find it all throughout, that salvation comes through death. The initial death we find in the death of baptism, so we go in the waters of baptism, we die, and then we come up, we are resurrected. And the new nature that we receive from Christ is the nature of righteousness, his, his righteousness. Okay? Then when we speak about the spiritual struggle throughout our lives, but this is also death. What are we doing? We're putting to death the deeds of the flesh, like we are warring against the sinful nature in us, putting to death the, the carnal desires of our flesh, this, this is also death. And then finally, of course, the final death is the death of the flesh. And only when the flesh dies completely, this is when the spirit actually goes to paradise. Like what is keeping the, what is keeping the spirit here? It is the flesh, right? The moment the flesh dies, the spirit is now free. It's free from the flesh, free to go to paradise. So this, this verse is speaking very, very much about the process of salvation that only Christ uh, could accomplish. And there is only, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, only one mediator. People get caught up on this verse when we speak about intercession of the saints. Intercession of the saints has nothing to do with this. Intercession of the saints is not about being a mediator between us and God. It has nothing to do with the salvation or that accomplishing salvation for us or satisfying the divine justice or being a ransom or any of those things. Intercession of the saints is simply asking someone to pray for you. That is what intercession of the saints is. Whether that person you're asking to pray for you is already in heaven or whether they're on earth, that's what intercession is, right? So, so just to make it clear, this mediation is a completely different thing than intercession. complete on the cross or will he mediate whenever it's judgment day the mediation was completed on the cross this is why it's saying who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time so the mediation was completed on the cross and in that moment every single person was offered salvation it, but it was an offer it's like now you all have access to salvation whereas before in the old testament there was no access to salvation no one went to paradise everyone went to hades there was nothing you could do but now that salvation has been offered to everyone and the forgiveness of sins is offered to everyone but now he's saying now what is your part in order to receive the gift of salvation right that's when we start talking about what are the things that christ commanded that we do in order to receive salvation so for instance he says you have to confess your sins you have to repent that's a, a qualification for salvation even though he died on the cross and even though he offered himself and even though he was sinless and even though he's a mediator but if you don't repent of your sins, you don't have access to that. Um, when he speaks about in John chapter 6 about eating his body and drinking his blood, and if you don't do it, you have no life in you. Again, that is a requirement of salvation, meaning in order to have access to the gift of forgiveness and salvation that I've offered, I'm providing means, and those means are what we call the sacraments, right? The means of salvation. All of the means of salvation are rooted in the work of Christ on the cross, 
without which none of those sacraments would have any um, any value because it wouldn't have been enough without this, right? So, so think of the sacraments. They are the means by which the Holy Spirit works in us to help us to take advantage of the mediation of Christ. They are what allow us to, to make use of the mediation, right? To make use of this gift that Christ has offered to everyone. Yeah, so God is, of course, working all the time, but it is not to do this, right? The, the Holy Spirit is working. God is always working in order to bring us to himself, to draw us to himself, to convict us of sin, to allow us to repent, and so on. But this act that was done in order to allow us to be reconciled is a one-time act. It's a one-time. Yes. So what we do in the in the liturgy this is a good question. What we do in the liturgy is a uh, a memorial of the original, not a re-crucifixion, not a re-crucifixion, right? So it's like we are reenacting the original crucifixion, not crucifying Christ again it is the body yes it is the body yeah. okay um, for which I was appointed a preacher so he's speaking about the message of salvation for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So the, the apostleship of St. Paul was built on the message of the gospel. See, the whole reason for the calling of Paul and the other apostles is to preach and teach this message of salvation, right? That is the thing. Like the whole, the whole message of the gospel is you are living in sin. Christ died for you so that you can live, accept him and live according to his commandments, right? And, and all the sacraments, the things that are necessary for salvation. So, so um, salvation for all mankind is the core doctrine that we preach, right? That we are trying to spread to the world. I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So prayer is offered everywhere. Right. Prayer is offered as individuals. Prayer is offered in the home, in the church, um, the church across the whole world. There is prayer that is being offered, whether I am by myself, whether I am with other people without wrath and doubting. Right. So in faith, in faith and in peace, right, in faith and in peace. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Okay? I'll read for you what St. John Chrysostom said about this. He says, What is this? Do you come before God with braids and golden jewelry? Maybe you are coming to a dancing locale or some indecent party. St. John Chrysostom was like very fiery in the way he talked. 
For braids and precious attire are appropriate to such pr places. However, in the presence of God, there is no necessity for such things. You are coming to pray for the forgiveness of your sins, to supplicate God, and to plead with him that he may respond forgivingly to you. Why do you adorn yourself? These clothes are inappropriate to someone pleading. How do you puff? How do you weep? How do you pray fervently while you're adorned in this manner? Okay, so he's emphasizing here that when we come to God in truly a spirit of, of humility and brokenness because of our sin, that we are not coming to adorn ourselves, to, to make ourselves look good, right? We are coming because we know we are not good, right? We are not good. So, so, so we are not, we're not coming kind of like in an ostentatious way. We're coming in a very meek and humble way, right? And that's the, and, and here he is, he is addressing problems that were existing at the time, right, as well. Like people who were coming, let's say, this way to the church um, because the focus was more on wanting to attract attention to myself or wanting to appear a certain way rather than on the sacrament, on the Eucharist, on coming to humble myself. Instead, I'm wanting to draw attention to myself. And the same is true when St. Paul is speaking about um, the women covering their hair during prayer. He said, why? Because the hair is the glory of the woman, meaning meaning the, the, the woman's like beauty coming from her hair, right? That she is voluntarily covering because the focus should not be on her own glory, but on the glory of God, right? That's the reason for the covering of the hair. Um, so here he's, he's, of course, addressing this to women specifically because this was, you know, uh, women, you know, very interested in their appearance and the way that they looked and so on. But this applies to men the same. I mean, the idea is if, if you are wanting to bring glory to yourself, right, in whatever means, right, then it's taking away from the purpose of why you're coming. Okay. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. So this verse, uh, these verses, a lot of times people read them and they don't really understand what they say. Or some people will say, well, St. Paul was like anti-woman because of the things that he would say about women, like uh, let a woman learn in silence and so on. What is it that he is saying? Okay. First of all, if you look in the scripture and you find what is the role of prominent women that you will find, okay? You find women as being prophets, like prophetesses. There's Deborah, who's one of the judges um, in the book of Judges. Um, Miriam is the sister of Aaron. She was a prophetess and she prophesied. Anna, the prophetess who lived in the temple um, at the time when, uh, when the parents of Christ brought him for, um, for his circumcision um, and, 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 and his... his um, uh, sorry purification. purification in the temple yes thank you um, and in the New Testament for instance we see like St. Mary we say she is the, 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 the most glorious of all of the saints right she is a woman um, in the New Testament also in the book of Acts the daughters of Philip um, they were uh, they prophesied um, women who served the poor women who were deaconesses right um, the mother and the grandmother of St. Timothy actually were mentioned and how they're the ones who raised him in the faith and so on Priscilla, the wife of Aquila, who also ministered with him and with St. Paul, right? So there is no shortage of women who are godly and who are given spiritual gifts and who are doing, you know, different things and prophesying even, right? So what is this really 
like the focus of all of this, this is all related to the priesthood. This is related to the priesthood. And when he's saying here, let a woman learn in silence with all submission, what he's saying is, uh, uh, like when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach. What does it mean to permit a woman to teach? Now, we have women in Sunday school that are teaching, right? And obviously women speak in the church, right? Here it's, it's speaking specifically about having the authority of the priesthood and giving sermons in the church, like for the congregation, okay? So when you look at all of the women that I mentioned, none of them were priests. Even St. Mary, she was not a priest, right? All of the disciples that, that the Lord chose, the 12 disciples, they were all men. The 70 apostles that God chose were all men. All of the bishops in the church were men. Every, every, all the clergy from the beginning till now have been men, okay? Because of this, because that God selected the man for this role, it is not to say that, that this means that the man is better than the woman. But this is the, the man was chosen for this role. And, and, and the, so the priesthood is the priests are selected from among the men. Okay? That's the essence of what this is saying. It's not saying literally that the woman is not allowed to speak in the church. Did you have? The proponents of uh, the other side would say that um, this patriarchy. Um, prevented women from um, holding positions and all that kind of stuff in the workplace. Not So these things translated from the, sa the sanctuary of God to the workplace as well. So there are plenty of things that m could be misused by man that are based on, say, say the scripture, and to be used in ways that are not intended. For instance, that's what the Pharisees did. Pharisees took the laws of God and they applied them wrongly, right, in the wrong way. You know, I was I gave one of the talks at the St. Fotini meeting, which is the women's meeting, and we went over Proverbs 31. And if you read Proverbs 31, it speaks about the virtuous wife. And if you could imagine from a stereotypical perspective when someone says, well, what does the Bible teach about the role of women? And you can say, oh, she's the one who stays home and she cooks and she takes care of the kids. and she But actually in Proverbs 31, that's not even mentioned. Like it talks about how like she has businesses and she does trading and merchants and and she she does all these things like 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 multiple businesses like 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 not not like no actual person could do all the things that she was doing right because it was too much right but if you look at the biblical model for the woman it's not like the the woman who's you know like uneducated and stays at home and needs her man to do everything for her it's not that at all so if you ask what does the Bible actually teach about being a woman, it's very different than maybe what the culture has taken, right? And, and, and said, no, this is, what, how, this is the parts we're going to apply and these are the parts we're not going to apply, right? So definitely anything, can, any person can take something from the scripture and apply it in the wrong way because they didn't understand. Right? They didn't understand. Yes. So, so, so the reason. So, what are the reasons that this is the the case, right? So, this is the other thing is he's saying here. So, he's saying what should be done, okay? But then he's given the reasoning. What is the reasoning? For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Okay, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So, he's saying what? He's saying that because of 
the order of the creation and because of the role of Eve in the fall, this is why things are this way. Actually, this is the curse from the very beginning. It says what? What is the curse of the woman after the fall in, in the book of Genesis? She's gonna, she's, she's, she's like, he will be her head. He will be her head. Can you imagine what it would have been like without that? Like if, if the fall hadn't happened, right? Because the idea of the man being the head of the woman is actually a, a consequence of the curse. Not because that, that was the original. Like, you know, like when, when Christ created Eve, he created her from his side, right? From his rib, right? Like that they would be equals, right? Uh, not to say that they are not equal in their value, but the idea that the man was given the headship over the woman, this was, this was a curse given to her because of what she did, actually. You know. <laughs> so a long time ago, it used to be the case that whenever there would be funerals, right, um, the women would be the ones at the very beginning of the procession of the funeral. Why, do you think? <laughs> Not the wailing, but... Because the women are the ones who led mankind to death. <laughs> so it's pretty, it's pretty harsh, right? It's pretty harsh. <laughs> because, because women were the ones who led mankind to death. So they're leading the funeral procession. <laughs> this was like the, 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 the way that funerals used to be done a long time ago. Okay, in the tradition, yeah. Okay, so, so but, but again, that he's, he's giving here the reasoning, right? He's giving here the reasoning. Um, uh, nevertheless, yeah, so, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. So he's addressing now here specifically, like, these women who are coming, like, adorning themselves and doing this, right, like, in this ostentatious way, he's saying, no, this is not the means of salvation, right? Like, like every, each of the sexes has, like a, like, a stereotypical vice associated with them. You know, the vice of the woman uh, is more like she is, she is wanting, like, vanity. Like, she's attracting to herself. Maybe the vice of the man is more violence, right, in his nature of being violent and, and anger and losing control and aggression and whatnot, right? So here he's addressing the woman, right, and he's saying this vanity, right, that, that maybe women and as a general struggle with, right, what is going to bring them, the salvation is the faith, love, holiness with self-control and the childbearing because the childbearing was a very specific gift given to the woman. You know, like when we speak about that God wants um, us to procreate, obviously, right? And, and, we, and in the book of Malachi, he speaks about how he makes the man and the woman one because he wants godly offspring. So the idea of childbearing is very holy and it's a gift given specifically to the woman. So he's saying, I want you to use this gift. Right, so it is actually a, a means of salvation in the sense that because it's difficult, <laughs> I mean, it's difficult, and not not just the childbearing itself, but the raising of children. Right, it's difficult. So this this also maybe is an answer to the modern phenomena of where people are like, you know, we don't want to have kids. Well, actually, having kids is a commandment. It's actually the very first commandment. What's the very first commandment? Yeah, be fruitful and multiply. Right, um, the idea of like choosing not to have kids indefinitely just because we want to enjoy our life um this is not uh this is not a christian principle right you, christians are not supposed to enjoy their lives no 
Yeah, actually, God placed inside us this desire, right? Especially in the woman, a desire for children, right? Because he wants us to have the children. But like all things that the world corrupts and twists to make it be instead of uh, we have this desire to give, we become now, no, I have just a desire to receive, right? I don't want to give of my time. I don't want to give of my money. I don't want to sacrifice my vacation time in order because I want to have kids. I don't want to give up my sleep. I don't want to give up this and this. So like the, the, the principles of the world have twisted like the original design of God and turned it to be like very selfish instead of very selfless, right? Even in such a thing, even in such like uh, a, a simple thing, something that maybe for generations nobody questions, like the idea of like having kids. I mean, used to be generations ago, people would have like eight, ten kids, you know? And now like having two kids is like, okay, we're going to slow down, right? Um, but, yeah. Megan, did you have? Yeah. Women cannot teach in the church. I, of course, I agree with all of that. But I just I heard a different opinion from um, those who are supporting the woman priesthood, and they say actually, I'm just gonna say what they said. But they say that because at that time the woman um, uh, in this church, specific church of Saint Timothy, uh, that he that they were like like too wild. So Saint Paul was giving like a recommendation to to say this like this this uh, commandments but why didn't christ choose any women in the ministry like christ was not one to conform would you agree he was not a conforming person he would do things that would be considered by society at the time to be intolerable right like all the time he, he flouted all the conventions at the time. So he was not a person who was be like, well, in order not to offend people, I'm going to live and do and teach according to only certain things that are going to be acceptable. No, he, was, he, was, he, he offended everyone. So if, as a principle, the idea of having women in the priesthood was correct, then he would not have shied away from choosing women to be disciples and apostles from the beginning. He wouldn't be like, well, no, people are going to argue against me. No, he wouldn't. He, they argued against him for everything, right? And he, that didn't matter to him. So it wasn't just about culture because Christ chose this. You see what I mean? Okay. Well, they were because that 120 were just the people who received the Holy Spirit. They were, just, they were the people in the upper room, including St. Mary and St. Mary Magdalene and all of that. That had nothing to do with the ministry. That had to do with the believers who were gathered together in one place. Yeah. Okay. Chapter 3. So, um, chapter 3 uh, focuses, uh, most of it is focusing on the qualifications of those who will be chosen for the ministry. Bishops and deacons. Okay. Um, also, some general procedures for worship, characteristics of the, uh, 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 yeah, I said characteristics of pastors. Um, and then the next chapter deals with some of the struggles that the, the pastors or the clergy will, will face. Okay. Um, so, v verse one. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Okay. So, we, 
speak a lot about how you should not, like you cannot choose the priesthood. And those who choose the priesthood is like, it's wrong, right? In our church, um, no one can apply to be a priest. No one can say, I want to be a priest. Uh, no one can go to the bishop, please ordain me to be a priest. Um, you don't go to the seminary and graduate and become a priest, right? Everything is a calling, right? You're either called or you're not. You're chosen or you're not, okay? But that doesn't mean here when he says uh, the man desires the position of a bishop. He is not desiring the authority of a bishop. He is not desiring, like, the perks of the bishop. He is desiring the service of the bishop, and the service of the bishop is a difficult one. It's a self-sacrificial service, right? That's why he's saying he desires a good work. He desires to wash the feet, right? He, he's not desiring to be exalted. He's not desiring to be, you know, crowned. He's not desiring for people to come and prostrate before him. He is desiring to wash the feet of the others. And uh, especially at the time in the early church, if you were a bishop, you were likely to be killed. And you were likely to be persecuted and exposed to torture and exiled. So who would want to be a bishop? you know, in that environment. Like you can say, you know, like I, I want to be a bishop because you really, really, really care about the service. It's not because you are going to receive anything else, right? It's not, you are not going to receive anything else. Um, <coughs> so the person who desired to be a bishop would bear all of this suffering in order to lead the people into a life of faith. Um, and... Um, St. John Chrysostom said, if anyone desires to be an overseer, so overseer is the word uh, in some of the translations is, is used, like you say, in the New King James. Overseer is episkopos, right? That's what uh, overseer means, the Greek word episkopos and the Coptic as well, right? Uh, which, which is like the person who sees from above, overseer, uh, which is the bishop. Okay. If anyone desires to be an overseer, he must not desire authority and dominion. He must desire to protect the church spiritually. If he feels that way, I would not blame him. Even Moses desired the job, but not the authority. Also, St. John says, there are many other things that the priest must be characterized with. First of all, he has to get rid of the desire to attain this rank, since if he desires it and gets it, it turns progressively into a love for dignity. This is one of the reasons, actually, that we choose the, the bishops from among the monks. Right, the monks are the ones who had already made very clear uh, in their choices that they want nothing in the world. They want no authority at all. They're actually given the least authority, the least visibility, uh, the the least rewards, the least glory of anyone, because they go to the monastery, they leave the world behind, they never expect to receive any earthly rewards. Um, they they choose a life of poverty and obedience and celibacy. Like they they want nothing to do with the world. And then we go to them and be like, no, you're going to be the bishop. You know, like, we're not going to give you any of the things that you really wanted. We're going to give you the opposite. Okay? Well, not completely the opposite, but you're going to be out in the world and you're going to receive such glory for yourself from all the people who are going to throng around you, seeking your guidance and your wisdom and giving sermons. And because the person who's chosen for it did not, did not choose it themselves. Right? They did not choose it themselves. That's kind of the wisdom of the church in choosing the bishops from among the monks. Because you're not choosing from people who wanted this, right? They, they, they didn't want it at all. So if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Um, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. Um, 
So go through these uh, kind of characteristics. The first one, he says, blameless. Um, St. John Chrysostom, he says, every virtue is included in that word. If a person feels from within that he has sinned, then he should not desire a task for which he is not qualified. Actually, such a person needs to be administered to rather than be an administrator to others. A provider needs to shine more brilliantly than any other planet. His life must be faultless so that others may look up to him as a role model. So definitely, and um, St. John also in his book the, the on the priesthood, he talks about the difference between a priest and a monk. And he says the monk who goes and lives by himself in the wilderness or lives by himself in isolation and seclusion, even if he has personal faults, those faults will not be exposed because he is living alone, right? And whatever faults that he has, they will not be a stumbling block to people, right? But the priest, every fault he has will be amplified and magnified and, and talked about and seen by everyone, right? And so it is much more difficult, right, for in someone who is in a public role like a priest or, or a bishop, okay? Um, there is a spiritual symbol um, of this command of being blameless, okay? In Leviticus 21, it's, it's a, God is saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, No man of your descendants in succeeding generations who has any defect may approach to offer the bread of his God. For any man who has a defect shall not approach. A man blind or lame who has a marred face or any limb too long, a man who has broken foot or broken hand or is hunchback or a dwarf or a man who has a defect in his eye or eczema or scab or is a eunuch. Okay. So here in, in Leviticus, God was speaking about the requirements of the people who could be priests. Okay, We know, of course, that the sons of Aaron were priests, but even among the sons of Aaron, there are qualifications. And if you had physical defect in you, then you could not be chosen to be a priest. It's not like it was a sin to have eczema. You know, now we have medicine for that, right? It's not a sin to be a dwarf or to have a broken hand or to it. But what was the purpose? Is because the priest represents God. So when a person looks at the priest, has to find someone blameless, blameless in the sense of nothing is faulty in them, even physically. And it is true even now. Like if a person has a physical disability, then they cannot be a priest in the church. Yeah. Because of this. Again, it's not to say that people who have the physical disability have something wrong with them or that they're less holy or righteous or anything like that. It's for the same reason. Okay. Um, also, um, when offering the sacrifices, what is it that Christ would do? What is it that God would say about the sacrifices that could be offered in the Old Testament? They had to be without blemish right they had to be without blemish and that sacrifice of course represents christ and the priest represents christ as well right so so it had to be without without, without blemish so when the people would look at it okay they would say this is perfect in in that sense then he goes on he says the husband of one wife now at the time um bishops there, there was not monasticism yet um, and bishops could be married because they were just among the like regular people, right, who became bishops. Um, St. John Chrysostom says, The apostle does not set this down as a command. He does not say that the bishop should have one wife, but rather that he is forbidden to have more than one. This is due to the fact that the Jews at the time were not allowed to get married twice, after the death of the first wife or after divorcing her, but also to have two wives at the same time. So um, 
the 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 idea that the same applies for the priest. The priest can get married before uh, he becomes a priest, but after he becomes a priest, if his wife dies, then he cannot remarry. Right? He cannot remarry and stay a priest. Okay. Um, so the husband of one wife. So here it applies in both ways, that he only has one wife at a time, but also he never remarries again if his wife dies. I didn't really get it. Like uh, he said, he needs to be uh, without fault, so that uh, otherwise he needs to be ministered to and stuff. Uh, who, who can say they're without fault? Uh, it's not. It's not intended to mean faultless, as in like perfectly faultless. But there are certain kinds of faults that c that allow a person to be a stumbling block easily, versus other kinds of faults that are more private. So, for instance, um, when Christ speaks about uh, different types of adultery. Right, so of course there is the physical adultery, like having an affair with a woman. Okay, now of course if that happened with a priest, that would be like extremely scandalous, and that would be a stumbling block to everyone. But also adultery, according to Christ, is lustful thoughts. So if a priest has a lustful thought, it is a sin, it is adultery, but it is not a stumbling block because no one knows. Right, so it doesn't cause the community to be shaken because of such a sin. So it doesn't mean that the priest is faultless as in without sin, but it means that the nature of his sin is such that it doesn't hinder his ministry or cause people to think that this man is unfit for this position. Yeah. Um, many people are consulted. Many priests are consulted. Anyone who knows this person's consulted. And the whole congregation is consulted because there's a vote. And there are cases where there was a person who, let's say, got a majority vote. Because, like, Sayyidna doesn't just, like, go by, like, 51%. No, you have to have, like, 95%. Like, you have to have a very high number. And there was a case where someone got, like, a very high number. But there was a person who was aware of some situation that was happening with them that could have been a stumbling block, and Sayyidna refused to ordain them. Right, so so there's definitely an investigation that's done for any person. Now, again, that doesn't mean that this person is sinless, obviously, right? But there are certain types of sins. Like, for instance, if one of the problems that they have is they don't get along with people well, right? Or they're quick to anger. Like, that's, of course, in the in the priesthood is a very, pr is very problematic, right? Because that's something you have to do all the time. So let's say maybe that specific area, they have to be very good, right? But maybe there's other areas of weakness that that person has that's maybe more private or internal or, you know, is not going to cause uh, a scandalous situation. Yeah. Uh, temperate, um, meaning like acting with wisdom, discernment, moderation, uh, without excess. Um, should be able to like guide his spiritual children wisely, and even his natural children, because again he's married, um, providing for their spiritual needs, but not ignoring their other needs. Um, able to guide and direct each person according to like how God is is given them uh, the spiritual gifts. Uh, modest, um, hospitable. 
receiving strangers, um, able to give of himself, generous. Uh, also, of course, able to teach something very, very important, right? Because something that the clergy do all the time. Um, this is not a requirement for personal life of the bishop, but more about his gifts that he has been given by God. Um, the the Discalia says, Give attention to your speech, O bishop, so that you may interpret the words of the scriptures if you can. Satisfy your congregation and quench their thirst from the light of the law. Thus they will be enriched with your teachings. Right. So a person who is a bishop, and as you see, when the bishop goes anywhere, the bishop is constantly speaking and speaking about the word of God and so on everywhere that they go. So they have to be able to do that and able to teach. Not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. Um, uh, not given to wine, meaning obviously like they don't drink alcohol. Um, the indulgence, this is St. Jerome, the indulgence in drinking is a wrongdoing that greedy and pleasure seekers commit. When the body gets hot with drinking, then immediately the fire of lust is aroused. Thus drinking indicates an undisciplined control of the soul as well as laxity in behavior. Such a state consequently leads to loss of chastity. For a person who just lives for pleasure is a dead person even though he lives. So, again, more requirements is someone who doesn't drink. Um, also, not violent. Um, again, like a person who is chosen to be a bishop should not be like a very angry person or forceful for person, but dealing with meekness and, and, and kindness to the people. Um, not greedy for money. Obviously, a person in this position as a clergy has access to the resources of the church. So they should, there should be no doubt that a person is going to be faithful in using that money gentle and not quarrelsome um, dealing again with the people not promoting conflict knowing how to reconcile people together who are already in conflict like how to calm people down how to get them to um, be reconciled one who rules his own house well having his children in submission with all reverence for if a man does not know how to rule his own house how will he take care of the church of god being a bishop <coughs> a bishop cannot like govern the church as a whole if his own household is in shambles Meaning, if he doesn't know how to govern his own house, same is true with a priest. You know, like the priest has to have, you know, some wisdom in, in managing his own house uh, before he can be selected to manage the house of God. Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Meaning, he has to be experienced. He can't be someone who is new to the faith. He can't be someone who has never served before. Or someone who is completely like like ha doesn't have any of the experience necessary that would be needed as a priest, because um, you know they have to be experienced both in the service and be experienced in the spiritual life. Because if they're going to be guiding other people in their own spiritual life, then they themselves have to have a solid spiritual life. Because otherwise, how are they going to do it? Um, being able to maintain humility when in the public eye, so someone who doesn't get puffed up uh, with the the role that they have received. Um, dealing with people with wisdom, so on. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. So he should have a good reputation, not only among those who are in the church, but even those who are outside the church. Right? Like sometimes it's easy for people to have a good reputation in the church because in the church they're like on their best behavior. Right? They're always going to say the right things, do the right things, wear the right things. They're going to be a certain way because in the church that's what's acceptable. And anything else, they would be called out for it. But when they go out into the world, 
right? Maybe they are totally different, right? The way that they talk, the way the, the clothes that they wear, like how people perceive them and so on. So in order to really tell whether a person is genuine, this is really a test of being genuine, um, and, and is, is to see like, okay, I'm, I'm acting the same everywhere, right? I'm not trying to just gain a favor with a certain group. Um, St. John Chrysostom, he says, it is beneficial that the good have a good reputation among their enemies. Why has no one accused the apostles of being adulterers, unclean, greedy, or deceivers? Their accusers were simply opposing their preaching. Is it not because their lives were blameless? That was so evident. It's very interesting, right? Like nobody ever tried to accuse the apostles of being sinful men, like sinful in terms of like their morality, because no one would believe it. Like their lives were so above reproach that no one would believe any accusation like that. The only accusations that came against them were that they were preaching what was false. Right? That was it. Now, he speaks about deacons. He says, likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to too much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own house as well. For those who have served as well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. So even though there is a great difference in the responsibility between the deacons and the bishop, but a lot of the same characteristics are being asked. Um, uh, and that's because that anyone who is being led by the Spirit of God will attain the character of God, meaning, meaning, like we are, we are, we are seeking people who are spiritual, and anyone who is spiritual will be taking on themselves the characteristics of God and being more Christ-like. Also, here when he speaks about deacons, he's not speaking about like the deacons that we have here that stand in liturgy, right? Like he's speaking about full consecrated deacons and the role was less liturgical and more about service. Like if you remember in the book of Acts when the, the rank of the deacon was established, it was established, why? To help the distribution of food for the widows, right? Like that was the, uh, th that was the core of, of the service. It was a service, like the word deacon means servant. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't just a, a liturgical role, it was a role of the world. Like we are serving the church, we are serving the people who are in the church. So again, we are interacting with the people, we are having, um, we, we have to have wisdom and discernment and all those things. So it's actually very recent. I believe it started our, uh, at the time of His Holiness Pope Shenouda, which is the Pope we had before this Pope. And he established it because he wanted more uh, engagement from like the young boys in the church. Um, and that's when the whole idea of all of these deacons that you see now, like the really young kids and stuff, that's that's how it began. Um, so, like for instance, in the in the in the Catholic Church, you wouldn't call you would call them altar boys. So essentially, these are like altar boys. They're not really deacons, um, and 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 so they're not considered they're not considered in the hierarchy of the clergy, right? Sorry, but. The say the Greek Orthodox Church, they also have chanters and readers and yeah. subdeacons, right? And we've been split from them for. I mean, it, it wasn't a it wasn't a rank that had was 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 widely used at all. Like until I mean, th I was surprised by this too. This is what I was told by His Eminence, and when I was asking, I don't know how it came up, but he was speaking about how His Holiness is the one who 
uh, who who established this as being commonplace in all the churches is to have so many of these chanters and, and all this as opposed to just being like the full consecrated deacon um, because at this time here that that, that didn't exist yeah yeah These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Okay, so St. Paul is he's hoping to come and visit St. Timothy soon, right, to further encourage him. Because again, like the purpose, this is pastoral, right? So St. Paul is telling St. Timothy all of this because St. Timothy is a bishop and he is going to uh, manage his own diocese, right? Uh, in the in the right way and so saint paul is giving him guidance of how to do so right so um uh, he's saying i'm hoping to come to you soon to give you more encouragement um and all of the church is the 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 church of the uh, how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of god which is the church of the living god like the whole the whole church is composed of all of the believers they stand together on the truth and so it's like a pillar uh of faith and if the truth is compromised, the whole foundation of the church crumbles. Um, St. Saint jo- Saint Jerome says, The church does not embrace walls and buildings, but rather comprises the truth of her teachings. She is the true faith. The focus that the church is not just the buildings, right? The church is the people, the church is the faith, uh, the teachings of the church, and so on. Um, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by the angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Um, This is like a synopsis of the entire Bible, right? Okay. (laughs) Uh, Or at least of the, of the new Testament. So, so speaking about like the fundamental core of what is it that we're talking about? Okay. His manifested in the flesh, which is the incarnation. He was justified in the spirit. Okay. In first Corinthians six, says, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Okay? He was seen by the angels. Right? The angels saw the Lord prior to the incarnation, now have seen him in a new light. Uh, he was preached among the Gentiles. So the name of Jesus was preached in all of the earth and all the apostles who went and preached his name everywhere. Believed on in the world, meaning people from everywhere have believed him, received up in glory, Christ rose from the dead. So the fundamental kind of core message that um, we are we are preaching. This is the end of chapter three. If any comments or questions about it. Yeah, like this is like for sure. Like we're not we're not doubting any of this. Okay. All right. Glory be to God forever, man. Can pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. We thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you for all the pastoral guidance and messages that we have read today from Saint Paul to Saint Timothy. We ask you, O Lord, to help us to fulfill the calling that you have called us for. And though maybe we have not called to be bishops, but you have called us, O Lord, in different ways to be good parents, to be good friends, to be 
um, respectful servants, to be in every way that you have called us to fulfill your, your, your mission that you have called us for. We thank you, O Lord, for your mercy upon us. Have mercy on us and help us to see all of the ways, O God, that we are clinging to the world, being distracted by it, or following after vain glory or idols that are distracting us from the calling you have called us for. We ask for your mercy, O Lord, forgive us our sins and grant us strength to fight against the, the evil one. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God, the Father, the grace to the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion and the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.